0: And that sort of in-betweenness, again, feeds into my practice too. Just not feeling like fully belonging.
1: Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. This episode is the second of a three-part series on feminism, contemporary art and disability that looks at the intersections between the three. It focuses on the nationally touring exhibition Femme Affinity. Femme Affinity is a collaborative female-led show. It features a series of collaborations between seven female artists who practice from Melbourne's Arts Project Australia, a studio and gallery for artists with an intellectual disability, and seven female contemporary artists, including the likes of Yvette Coppersmith and Prudence Flint. In this episode, we hear from Janelle Lowe, one of the artists in Femme Affinity who collaborated with Arts Project artist Eden Mentor. Janelle is a photographer whose parents migrated from Singapore, and her work explores a sense of otherness between her cultural heritage and her Western upbringing. In a very honest conversation, Janelle talks about this, as well as navigating the art world as a person of colour, her collaboration with Eden, and why disability isn't visible in contemporary art. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsors for this series, Nets Victoria, who are nationally touring Fem Affinity, assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council for the Arts, its arts funding and advisory body. There's many elements of your practice I want to discuss, but I think it might be better to start with talking about where the art partly comes from. And you're the first person in your family to be born outside of Asia. And I wanted to know, especially because your heritage and your family, I think, informs so much of your work in many ways. What was your upbringing like?
0: So I'm originally from Western Australia, grew up in Perth in the 90s, very much in the shadow of, you know, Pauline Hanson and her not liking Asians very much. It was actually quite difficult. Now I reflect on it when I think about it. It sounds strange to say it now. But like my mom would get refused service at the deli counter at Kohl's right. because she was Asian. So we'd be waiting there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes while other people would come through and be served until she, she's a tiger lady. <laughs> I love my mom. She's set a really good, um, like a good example for me in terms of uh, asserting it herself. But she would have to, you know, make herself known in order to get service. And I guess I didn't really reflect on how that impacted me until probably more recently, if anything, sort of how I uh, go about being really polite, how I make sure when I step up to that counter, if I'm trying to order something at a shop, I'm like, my English is at its best, you know, even though English is my first language. And I think that sort of position of feeling like an outsider, maybe feeling not that welcome, I think that started really early and really does continue to inform my practice today, for sure.
1: Was that something you and your mum talked about?
0: Not really. Uh, Like, I think I mentioned it to her. We have a great WhatsApp family chat that gets, like, 200 messages a day.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know
0: what all the kids have eaten and that kind of thing. But um, I think I mentioned it to my mum because I do remember, and she said... Oh, yeah, but uh, there's a joke that my mom's like a smiling assassin. So she's, she's, you know, she'll smile at you while she's saying it, but she'll mean business. Um, And she's like, yeah, I told them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely sort of an early kind of memory. And, you know, that with school being somewhat segregated as well in the 90s in WA, it was worse for my brother and sister, who are older than I am, Um, but it still wasn't great. Uh, And I remember, like being bullied for wanting to go between groups of friends. So going between like the Asian kids slash anyone else who wasn't white in one group and wanting to make friends with like the Aussie kids as they were known Um, and being kind of picked on by both sides for that because it's like pick a side, you know? And that was, that was very interesting. (laughs) And that sort of in-betweenness again feeds into my practice too. Just not feeling like fully belonging, not feeling fully, uh, like I fit, I suppose.
1: So how – that would have been happening when you were growing up and at the same time you obviously were interested in art and you were particularly interested in photography or how, how did that um, come about?
0: The interest in photography started in high school purely from not wanting to be photographed. <laughs> So I really hated having my photograph taken. I was having all kinds of, you know, body issue images, at the, like body issues at the time, like not liking how I looked. A big part of growing up in WA was idolizing, like, people who didn't look like me. The sort of, like, the blonde hair, the beautiful blue eyes, the especially WA surfer chick. All things I'm not. So I, when I saw pictures of myself, I was like, no. (laughs) So I picked up a camera and I was photographing my classmates and my friends. I was documenting events. People were like, oh, I won't bring my camera. I'll ask Janelle for the pictures afterwards. And that was kind of a nice way to relate to people as well. Because I didn't, I didn't have very, I haven't had a lot of friends historically growing up because of not fitting in. So it was a really nice way to relate to people and realize that I
1: was good at it. It's interesting what you say about the body, because I know... For myself and for so many female friends, one of the first awarenesses that you have of your femaleness is you have a certain body, and then you want another body.
0: For sure, grass is always greener, right? We're always sold that there's something better. It's taken time to come to, you know, it's definitely taken it's definitely taken time to come to kind of a acceptance of my own body, and I think that I've been putting that into my work. As well, deliberately putting myself forward in different ways. That self-portrait of me, the nude self-portrait with the little koala.
1: Yeah, I think we should always just like set the scene because it's, it's an amazing photograph and you're <laughs> sitting on this bed, you're kind of lit by this almost, it looks like a soft kind of golden light coming through a window and you're smoking the cigarette and you have this koala over your genitals and it's, I mean, it's such a powerful, striking image. It is one of my,
0: it probably sounds narcissistic to say it, given it's a picture of me, but uh, it's one of my favourite works I've produced and it was a turning point for me. I mean, personally, it was a significant point in my life because i just made a decision to leave like, um, like a really terrible, abusive relationship and it was sort of like a quite freeing moment, I suppose, a feeling of like putting myself forward.
1: So he started off by photographing other people. What was the moment then when you turned the camera on yourself?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing that I haven't probably fully thought about, but turning the lens inward to self-portraiture was probably taking control of my own image and not letting other people kind of capture what they thought that I should look like, you know, particularly as like a person of color, representing myself in my own way, probably subconsciously at that point was something that was very important. And only now over time have I really come to kind of realize more fully and more consciously.
1: Did you always have this kind of impulse to document?
0: I think so. Like a lot of my work at the moment currently and work that's going into my solo show that's coming up is revolving around the family archive. And I think the love of documentation comes from going through our family albums. There's a drawer at home in this really big old wooden cabinet. And every time I go home or my siblings go home, everyone pulls it out and everybody's flipping through. And it, to me, it's almost like it's another world because most of the images are taken in Singapore, which is where my family is originally from. And so for me, it's sort of like exploring the family history that I'm not a part of because <laughs> my siblings are significantly older than I am. It's almost like they had a whole different life before
1: I then came along.
0: And so that sort of love of documentation, I think, comes from that because it gives me so much insight into like where they've been and what they did.
1: You saying that reminds me of a photo series that you did at your surface where there are these women in their bridal outfits, except you've you've kind of golded their faces out. And I was wondering, are they from family photographs?
0: They are family photographs. So I was really lucky a couple of years ago, I went home and my dad uh, was just like, oh, here's a USB. My uncle sent a whole bunch of pictures, family pictures. And it was like a (laughs) As an artist, I was like, oh, I see. This is what I'm going to be working with for the next few years. And I have. They're all my uh, variously like my great aunts who I never got to meet. I've heard a lot of really fun stories about. And I just sort of noticed as going through them that even though they got married at different times, there was this real pattern and repetition in the way they were being portrayed and I was like how much of this pe-? and I don't know them personally right but like how much of the person is left in these images because they're very they're ornate they're decorative there's
1: you know I well, mean um, <laughs> that was the reason I asked because they're so perfect yeah.
0: <laughs> for sure everything's sort of you know immaculately presented and I just sort of realized I was like that tiny face is kind of all that's left of the individual because you know dowries is still a thing when I was growing up I remember my mom telling telling me like oh don't worry you'll at least get to pick the gemstone that your dowry can be like you get to choose if you really like sapphires it could be sapphires and I'm like ah cool (laughs) no interest in getting married at all (laughs) so yeah that that series was a real reflection on my position around like not wanting to be married not wanting to be dowried not wanting to I guess not to to
1: sort of lose myself a little bit when you're Do you feel compelled to make art about these things and these questions?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's something that's really important to me and something that I've come into and through, and this is through wonderful encouragement from both, you know, people close to me, but also my gallerists as well, like to make work that truly I'm interested in making, that is I'm vested in, that I'm interested in exploring. I definitely feel compelled to do that and I enjoy that process as well. I think that's something that's really important. I... Art for art's sake, which I know is a, you know, um, like I I can appreciate it, I can respect it, but it's not for me. I think it really always has to come from quite a personal point of view. And if other people connect to it, great. But if they don't, that's also okay as well.
1: You're still at the beginnings of your career in many ways, (laughs) but you've had so much success for being at the beginning of your career. And I, I always wondered... When you're kind of dealing with this traumatic history and these personal events in your art, but you're actually, but your art is successful at the same time, is that a weird position to be in?
0: It is an odd position to be in. I mean, to be launched kind of into the spotlight. I was 23 when I won the National Photographic Portrait Prize. We should I was... say
1: you were the youngest person in Australia <laughs> to ever win that prize, and the <laughs> second woman.
0: Yeah, that was obviously it was a fantastic experience it's changed the entire trajectory of my life for the like so much good has come out of it but it was crippling at 23 being completely unknown to suddenly be in the spotlight and to have people say oh you're a portrait photographer I'm like am I and it took quite a while to not be paralyzed with fear, I was suddenly also, you know, very obviously, I love being represented by my gallery, I really do. But I look at the other artists in there, like, oh, am I supposed to win a major prize every year? How am I going to do that? And yeah, it's taken a while to kind of unpack that and step back and kind of in terms of you know, success around my work. I went back to study for fun while I was still working and exhibiting and freelancing. I was like, let's add full-time study in on that. I have I never had the art school experience.
1: Oh, right. I didn't realize that.
0: I went back and did a Bachelor of Fine Art just to see what it was like, because I'm commercially trained. I have a lot of technical training in photography, but I have no art training. And when I, when I went back to Art school, there was a very interesting insight into the art industry and the institution of art. There was one instance where I made a body of work that wasn't around cultural identity or anything related to that or, you know, being being a woman or like all that kind of stuff. I got marked down for it. And I got critiqued for it. I guess the feedback I got was like, oh, it's not as good as your like cultural stuff.
1: What did you think about
0: that? I was pretty just pretty mad. I definitely left art school with a lot of mixed feelings and it took a while to recover, if that makes sense, and to give myself permission to make what I want again and not have it kind of clouded by the institution of like, you can't do this, you can't do that. I think it's a, not an uncommon experience, unfortunately, I think for um, a lot of students going through and I
1: think for a lot of artists. You teach at university now yourself, and I mean, I I guess you'd have students who are making work that deals with their cultural background and trying to also navigate the art world at the same time. What advice do you give to them?
0: It's tough too because I'm still the only person of colour as well. I've been the only person of colour basically on every staff and that's a lot to represent, if that makes sense. But, you know, for my students, I think the most important thing I want to tell them is to give themselves permission and that a grade in this context, like I'm really sorry to say it, it doesn't matter, (laughs) you know, um, I think think it's important that you're making work that feels true to you.
1: What do your family think about your art? They
0: as of always and now, are not really involved. I, I know my parents are making some, or my mum, uh, I would say, is making some effort to try and be a bit more encouraging. But I've never really got it. They've never really got it. And that's okay. I think I've I'm coming to peace with that. I think a really great piece of advice my um, my psychologist said to me was, your parents are never going to be what you wish that they were. And you know, that's laden with the cultural distance and generational distance and all of that kind of thing as well. But she just said, you're not going to get what you want from them and you have to be okay with that. And uh, that was really important. <laughs> it took a while for it to sink in, but that was really important. And I can very much accept that my, how I interact with my family and what I share with them, there's still plenty there, even if it's completely divorced from the art that I do.
1: To change topic a little bit, you, because you're in the fem Affinity show and you collaborated with Eden Mentor, who practices from Arts Project Australia, Maybe talk through how, how you two bonded, because you have, you have a pretty close friendship now through that collaboration.
0: We do. The way it started was we didn't know who each other, we didn't know each other at all. Basically, like I got invited to collaborate and I was like, sure. Uh, and I walked up the stairs and, and saw Eden for the first time and Eden wasn't having a great day, but just kind of the bonding happened pretty immediately. I think we both looked at each other and really were like, I like you. And then the process of finding out more about each other. I think the process of sharing a lot of what I've just talked about, actually, like a lot about bad exes. <laughs> <laughs> and relationship troubles, and you know, figuring out your own self worth and figuring out how you can put yourself forward. That was definitely a big thing that we bonded over. And feeling different, feeling being bullied at school, you know, being an outsider with not very many friends, that was definitely something that we bonded instantly over. I think this sort of vulnerability can cement your friendship. Pretty quick, a lot faster than just discussing like what you enjoyed on Netflix the night before, although that's very important too. But like, you know, and something else that uh, has just recently kind of come about is Eden and I spent a bit of time discussing how both of us kind of neither felt like a boy or a girl. And that's Eden's quote as well. And it's really nice to know kind of like a, I guess, a year on now, or is it two years on, from the initial start of our collaboration for both of us to sort of be exploring our identities and exploring our gender identities and non-binary pronouns and like all of that kind of stuff. Is it's nice to have that it wasn't just a moment in time that we were collaborating, if that makes sense. I think it's been said a lot in things that have been written about us, like it's expanded beyond the Arts Project Studio into our homes, into meeting families and close, you know, people close to us to support each other as we continue navigating through the arts.
1: In terms of the work you two produced, they're photographs and they're quite large scale photographs and they're very funny. Some are quite poignant, but some very amusing
0: yes anyone who's met Eden knows how much fun and how much joy I think Eden brings to any room that you know Eden's in and there was so much room which is a really lovely thing about Femme Affinity was leaving so much room for the collaborations to be whatever they wanted to be in you know for each individual pairing and we laughed a lot in the process of making our art and we like I think we laughed a lot also maybe potentially cried a bit <laughs> things with each other and uh that yeah I guess the images and the product of it is it is like a documentation of our sort of collective journey together and like yeah it's fun and it's funny and is there anything wrong with art if it's not deadpan serious as well you know I see a lot of it's interesting with portrait photography especially you see a split of like oh a smile it can't be art It's not serious enough enough to be art. But then a regular criticism I see on Facebook of the National Portrait Prize is like, nobody's cracking a smile. Right, really? You know? And there's, yeah, there's quite a, regularly, it happens every year, people's kind of saying, everybody looks too miserable. So (laughs) it's it's a difficult balance to walk, I suppose, if you're worried about how people are perceiving it. But what it ended up, I'm really happy with how the works ended up. And I think Eden is as well.
1: You're a person of colour and Eden has an intellectual disability and you've both been quite marginalised in the history of art. Was that something that you two talked about?
0: Maybe a little, maybe a little. I think it was very exciting for Eden to see her work, see herself, I think, as well. Like, you know, that talk about representation and being able to see yourself somewhere, literally Eden seeing themselves big in gallery spaces, we're traveling into state, this is prior to COVID, traveling into state and giving an artist talk and sharing about ourselves and, and and other people coming to hear it and having a good time. It was all new and it was all very exciting. And it's great, but I think, yeah, I think it's also there's to me anyway, when I'm reflecting on it, I think there is also a little bit of an element of sadness for that because as you say, like there's not that much representation of that sort of work out there. And the, you know, the ga- the gatekeeping is ground up when it comes to art institutions, in my point of view anyway. You know, like you look at who's on the board, who's making the decisions. And yeah, I, like I, I feel like there's a cultural shift that's happening. I feel like people are looking out to try and represent marginalized voices in the arts better. But it's still not being done great. And something that I felt... Um, And I've discussed this with um, Sim from Arts Projects as well. I got to a tipping point where I was really upset in the process of collaborating with Eden because I didn't realise this. Sim had to sort of explain it. She's like, you've been advocating this whole time because people would come to me as if I could make decisions for Eden. And were I collaborating with an artist who was neurotypical, this wouldn't be the case. They would go straight to the other person to ask them a question. Are you interested in this? Are you comfortable with this? Not going to someone else who's another entirely different individual and asking them to speak on behalf. And, yeah, that was very frustrating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and especially because Eden is very capable of answering for herself. (laughs) And it shows the, yeah, just the, I guess it's ignorance really with which people are approaching the entire field of, of art and disability.
0: Yeah I, yeah, I have to agree with you on that one. And yeah, I really got thrown in and I'm glad I did. I think it was a really important experience and it was such a wonderful experience for me. I've had such a great time with everything I've done with Eden and with Arts Projects. And I just, yeah, I want, I want people to be more aware. I want people to, you know, make that effort to, I don't know what the right phrase is, like, I want, to, I want art institutions, organizations, I want people to make curators, you know, I want them to make more of an effort to understand how to be better inclusive when, when they're programming, when they're um, asking artists to take part, to push it beyond a tokenistic kind of like, oh, yeah, we've got tick, 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 we've got some boxes, you know, we've got an artist who has an intellectual disability, oh, we've got an artist who's, you know, not white. <laughs> it's such a surface engagement, and I'd love to see it pushed further and be better.
1: When you're in an exhibition under the banner of feminism, I mean, feminism obviously has a very white history and a very upper middle class history. Is that something that you have to grapple with?
0: For sure. Absolutely. And part of going back to art school was running up against that in a very dramatic, blunt way. I was taking photographs of myself, experimental pictures of my body, sections of my body, so not like the whole, not without a face. And I got told by a particular lecturer that I'm not allowed to do that because it's not feminist and if you want to do that, if you want to gain permission to do that, you have to read this 200-page essay. And I did, out of spite, and I highlighted the only three lines that were even remotely relevant.
1: So for that idea of, I guess, tokenism in the art world, it seems like almost with disability, it's some—it's not even included sometimes at a tokenistic level. Yes. It's just not included. Absolutely. I, what do you think is going on there? Why? Uh, I, I mean, gu- my gut
0: response to you saying that is, you know, people think, oh, it's too hard it's too hard to cater it's too hard to negotiate that's what I, I guess anyway obviously like that somehow the art won't be as good or the the artist won't be as like dedicated to what they're do, which is all completely incorrect <laughs> that I guess that's probably my gut instinct that it's like oh effort you know like with, like with so many things uh like learning people's pronouns or all that sort of stuff takes a little bit of extra effort but like how much reward does that give you know in terms of making someone feel welcome feel included feel like they can operate at their best i can tell based on the way it happens to me the number of last minute invites i get as a person of color where like international artists are confirmed interstate artists are confirmed everything's in place and you go through the list and everyone's white and their last minute invitation to you oh, would you like to be involved? The deadline's like today.
1: What do you think institutions need to do then? I, I mean, I don't know how you like you foster genuineness.
0: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I Unfortunately, and this is only in my very limited knowledge because I'm not, you know, I, like a, my decision to not f- it, How much I engage, I suppose, with art institutions and organizations, the way they work is definitely less than some artists. But every time I hear about a curator of Asian art who's white, I'm like, maybe it's time that we make some space. You know, maybe it's time we make some space to let people who really live with the content, who, engage, who live, breathe. And obviously I know that's a controversial thing to say and I'm not saying people should just lose their jobs. That's not what I'm saying. But like open up a co-directorship keep an eye on who you're employing. Like, unfortunately, I think that institutions from the ground up have so many barriers to people who are marginalized getting involved. And I think because there's all those issues, there's just so many hurdles in the way, like I'm someone who doesn't think twice about things like diversity quotas or hiring because there's so much imbalance, you know, something like that is just like a way that we can come in and yeah, I don't know.
1: Do you think things are improving? I hope so. And that was Janelle Lowe for this second episode of our mini series looking at contemporary art, feminism, and disability, and focusing on the show Fem Affinity. Stay tuned for episode 3 and listen back to episode 1 with curator, artist, and academic Catherine Bell. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify or otherwise listen at Art Guide online where you can keep up to date with art related features, articles and interviews from across the country.